I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Andrew M. Koppelman, award-winning John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University and the author of the new book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed, available now from St. Martin's Press. It's a fascinating conversation in which Andrew tackles what he regards as the problems with libertarianism today. We'll be discussing a number of figures associated with libertarianism, including Murray Rothbard and the Koch brothers. In doing so, we'll get at the heart of libertarian philosophy, its relationship to liberalism, and much, much more. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Andrew M. Koppelman, author of Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with. He's the author of a new book that provides a... A uh, very interesting critique, I guess, of the places that libertarianism as a political movement and philosophy have, have gone in uh, recent years. And I, I, I want to frame it that way because I'm not sure it's a completely anti-libertarian book. I think there's a lot of respect uh, for figures like Hayek in this book, uh, but it, it does provide a critique of the directions that libertarianism has gone in. And the book is called Burning Down the House. The author is Andrew Kopelman. Uh, John Paul Stevens, professor of law at Northwestern University. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm very happy to be here. So, Andrew, I guess where we should start um, before we get into the weeds, I think we should talk a little bit about libertarianism and uh, what it means. And also, even before that, I think we should define uh, liberalism because you sort of define libertarianism as like the mutant offspring of uh, liberalism in some ways. And I think the ways which we use liberalism, I guess, is very different from how we would use those terms in uh, political science or political philosophy. So let's let's define liberalism and what we mean by that. Absolutely. Liberalism is the idea that the goal of political life is to enable people to live their own lives as they choose, as opposed to 
uh, the idea, which predominant in much of the world, uh, historically and today, that the point of the state is the greater glory of the God of God, or uh, the triumph of our race over our other races, or the triumph of the true religion. Uh, and liberalism rejects any collective end of that kind and wants to give people the power to live their own lives as they choose. And so that uh, then implies constraints on state power, uh, implies uh, democracy and separation of powers. But the goal of all of those is to enable people to live as they like. And what is distinctive about libertarianism is the idea that you can achieve that goal by minimizing the authority of the state. So the state, if it has any legitimate function at all, libertarians disagree about that, its function is to protect persons and property. And that's it. No redistribution, no regulation, just minimal police protection, and that is all. And the difference the disagreement that liberals like me have with libertarianism is that we think that in order for the state to deliver to people the power to live as they like, you need a bigger and more powerful state than the libertarians want in order to protect people either from private power or from just the random misfortunes that the universe generates. Uh, COVID is a good example. <laughs> COVID didn't violate anybody's rights. The only reason why many of us, hopefully most of us at this point, are vaccinated against it is that government raised a lot of money in taxes and gave it to Big Pharma to do research that Big Pharma would not have undertaken on its own because it was too risky. If we could on the COVID issue, uh, I thought it was interesting near the end of the book, you touch on COVID and how there were actually, I guess, different reactions uh, amongst some of the libertarians. I know you talk about how Lou Rockwell was uh, very against like any government intervention to dealing with this issue. But apparently there were some libertarians like Walter Block that uh, sort of said he was doing an absurd reductionism there. So could you talk a little bit about that? Well, so this really goes to the question of whether the state has any legitimate uh, authority other than uh, protecting people's rights. It also raises the question of what counts as aggression against other people, because the core idea of libertarianism, I guess most starkly presented by Murray Rothbard, who in a lot of ways is the most important libertarian thinker of modern times, uh, is the state needs to protect us from aggressing against one another. We have an obligation not to aggress against other people. Right, and the, the, the non-aggression principle, I think. Non-aggression <laughs> principle. And uh, the question is, do, you do I violate the non-aggression principle if I have the disease and I don't take steps to avoid transmitting it to other people? If I am contagious or I might be contagious and I go into a crowd where I could infect other people. And Rockwell, trying to, in a piece, trying to figure out what Murray Rothbard would say, thought, look, if the state can protect us from risks, then the sky's the limit. There's all kinds of things the state does to protect us from risks. And then you get a big state and that would be terrible. So no, the state can't do anything to limit the spread of COVID. People have to directly aggress against one another or else the state has no legitimate role. And that was too much for Walter Block, both of them being old Rothbardians, <laughs> disciples of Murray Rothbard who are still with us. So let's, I, I wanna get into who Rothbard was um, because I thought it was interesting what you said there that uh, he may be the most important libertarian thinker uh, especially because I think a lot of people that I've known over the years have said, oh, Rothbard was um, an academic that was sort of a, uh, a big fish in a small pond, or, or they'll say that, oh, Ayn Rand is more important to libertarianism or um, Hayek is more important. But I do think Rothbard is very important uh, to libertarianism, and I think some people overlook that. So I want to get into that. But first, maybe we could talk about well, what are the foundations of libertarianism? Like who, who can we look at as its founders, people like Hayek? Well, the modern libertarian movement really starts with Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, which was published in 1944. And it is a time when there is a broad consensus in the English-speaking world that the only way to run an economy is central government planning. And this comes out of the experience right before World War II, 
the world's most admired economic managers were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because they had turned their economies around. While Britain and France and the United States were all deep in depression, those two countries were booming. And while Western intellectuals didn't like the dictator's methods, they thought, you've got to have central planning. And that was the position of the British Labor Party. And so Hayek wrote his book really in protest against that. But in the United States, there were- That's that's the road to serfdom we're talking about, right? That's the road to serfdom, yes. And- uh, There were uh, people in the United States who were resisting Roosevelt, who uh, came upon this book. Nobody expected the book to be a success in the United States. The University of Chicago only printed 2,000 copies, and it was a huge hit, and it was a big bestseller because uh, people who were opposed to Roosevelt thought, this is what we've been trying to say, and Hayek is saying it much more articulately. But there's a category mistake here from the beginning, because Roosevelt was never adopted the platform of the British Labour Party. He did not want central state control of the means of production. Uh, He didn't want to socialize all the big businesses. He played with corporatism in the first couple of years of his term and then abandoned it in favor of welfare state liberalism. So I think that there's this confusion in libertarianism right from the beginning, which I have to say Hayek was not guilty of. Hayek understood perfectly well that what Roosevelt was doing was not central planning, but he did worry about any kind of redistribution scheme because he thought that it would put us on the slippery slope toward central economic planning. So he was always quite critical of social security, which he thought was going to lead us there. Now, the slippery slope arguments were always empirical arguments. They're arguments about what is likely to happen if we go on. Social security has been around for a long time, and uh, the United States is the poster child of capitalism. So it appears that the two can coexist. So real quick here, I guess with Hayek, can we argue, I guess, that Hayek ends up being, out of all these thinkers that that we often talk about and associate with libertarianism, whether it's Hayek or Nozick or Ayn Rand or uh, Rothbard, is, is Hayek maybe a little bit less dogmatic than some of the later thinkers? I think that Hayek is clearly the most powerful thinker of the group. Uh, and Hayek has enduring true things to say about how a modern economy works that I think Americans on the left need to read and think about. Uh, Hayek's big insight is that a modern economy is too complex, contains too much information for any central planner to possibly decide what ought to be produced, what prices ought to be. The only way in which you can come up with rational uh, answer to those questions is to allow markets to operate and to allow prices to determine production. Now, uh, he also, uh, unlike many subsequent libertarians, is aware of the ways in which markets fail, either because uh, there are public goods that the market won't supply, Uh, So uh, roads, or I just had the example of COVID research, the market will undersupply, or negative externalities like pollution. And in Road to Serfdom, he says, well, with respect to problems like pollution, the state has got to regulate. There's no alternative to that. And the Hayek's other big insight is that you can't expect markets to distribute fairly that markets are forward-looking. Markets reward people based on what their work is, what their product is worth to people now, not whether they've been virtuous in the past. And so people's lives get disrupted. If uh, I am an experienced wheelwright in my 40s who has uh, become really good at making individual wheels, and then people figure out how to mass produce the things and I'm out of work, I did not suddenly become less deserving. This is just how markets work. Markets disrupt people's expectations. And so that means that there isn't the kind of principled objection to redistribution that you get if you think that everybody is entitled to their marginal product and it's wrong for the state to take it away. So then how do we get from a figure like Hayek to a figure like Nozick and then and then uh, a character like Ayn Rand? Uh, well, Rand is, I think, the crudest of the lot, writing at about the same time as uh, Hayek in the 40s and 50s. Uh, 
the uh, two major novels are rather different in their uh, views of capitalism. Atlas Shrugged thinks that three free markets reward everybody and reward the uh, deserving. But in The Fountainhead, there are all kinds of unsavory characters who figure out how to work the business system and are rewarded. This yellow journalist, Gail Winant, gets rich. And this uh, brilliant architect, Henry Cameron, gets neglected. Um, but uh, the crude picture is one in which markets reward the deserving. There's not much of a philosophy there. And uh, I think Rand is really working through her trauma of living through the Russian Revolution, where she really did encounter tyranny and incompetence. And it was awful. And I think that that leads her to perceive, uh, it leads her to misperceive the America that she lives in. She looks at Franklin Roosevelt and John Kennedy, and she sees Lenin and Stalin, and they're not the same. Whereas Rothbard uh, is writing in, I mean, he, he has been active since the 1950s, uh, but he really has his big breakthrough in the 1970s when the press discovers libertarianism. It is a time of growing distrust of authority on account of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. And uh, Rothbard's ideas suddenly get legs. And libertarianism extends from economic uh, liberty to a broader right to be weird. And it's associated with resistance to the military draft, which is quite popular at that time. I, I was going to say real quick, one of the aspects I really like about Rothbard, even though I don't agree with him, is um, I, I do agree with him on a lot of an, on, on issues related to war. Like, I, I you know, yeah. I do tend towards an anti-war position. And he seems like he jealous with the left on that in some ways, especially during uh, mm -hmm. Vietnam. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, although I, I guess I, I would now say it depends on the war. Uh, you know, Vietnam was a piece of destructive foolishness. Uh, that's not the case with every war. Uh, but uh, Rothbard offers a general philosophy based on the non-aggression principle that is systematic in a way that Rand is not, and it's far more categorical than Hayek, and so more emotionally satisfying than Hayek, because Hayek is always telling you, well, it depends on whether there's externalities, depends on whether the market fails, we have to get deep into the empirics, and Rothbard doesn't do that. And Rothbard mirrors the position of the contemporary libertarian party, and there are certain aspects of Rothbard's thought that have had a powerful influence on the Republican Party today. And I think we are down to the present time. Uh, after Trump, you know, Trump uh, many ways repudiated libertarianism, said that we've got to intervene in markets in all sorts of ways. But if we look at what the Trump administration actually accomplished, it was able to pass a massive tax cut. It almost got rid of Obamacare. It wasn't able to do that. And it gutted the federal bureaucracy and fired a lot of experts in the federal bureaucracy, which should, I don't know if it would have, but it should have horrified Hayek because it means that there's just a lot more opportunity to pollute and poison your neighbors than they were before. And that counts as aggression. But Rothbard was extremely suspicious of regulation of that kind, even though he understood that it would license allowing people to harm other people. And I guess Rothbard, his brand of libertarianism today is sort of called, um, I think a lot of his followers refer to themselves as anarcho-capitalists, right? Yeah. Well, Rothbard was so suspicious of the state, he really was an anarchist. He did not think that uh, you could, uh, that there was anything legitimate for the state to do, that all of the functions of the state could be satisfied by private protective associations. And that's the framework that Robert Nozick picks up on and runs with in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, a book that I understood much better after I had read Rothbard, and I could see Rothbard's influence. Uh, Nozick actually encountered Rothbard when he was a graduate student, and Rothbard- I did not know about that. A lot of things, yeah. He was actually a social democrat when he started graduate school at Princeton, and Princeton is a short train ride from New York, and Rothbard would hold court in his living room and Nozick was one of the bright young men who would come and visit in Rothbard's living room. And uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia is largely based on a Rothbardian framework, trying to show how, given Rothbardian anarchy, a state could legitimately emerge. 
But uh, the uh, the sunny picture of what anarchy would look like, uh, yeah, it's not like it hasn't been tried. Uh, you know, we've got lots of experience with multiple armed groups in the same territory who could make gains from trade if they would only cooperate. Uh, we call them warlords. They clearly would benefit from cooperating, but there are enormous difficulties in cooperation because it always depends on changing configurations of power. If you want to see how that kind of cooperation can be disrupted by changing configurations of power, watch The Godfather, <laughs> which shows you a renegotiation among warlords. So I guess in terms of Rothbard and his influence, like how would you sum up his thinking? I mean, beyond saying, you know, he's anti-state, he's like an anarchist. Like what, how does he sort of sell his brand of libertarianism? Like what is that sunny side that he's promoting? Well, the sunny side that he's promoting is freedom. Uh, libertarianism is typically sold as the idea that anybody should be able to live any way that they want. Uh, without interference from anybody else. And uh, there are a lot of books that try to sell libertarianism as an idea by some very smart people, you know, David Boaz or Jason Brennan, uh, and they offer libertarianism as this idea that people should be able to live as they like. But I think that that doesn't capture the specificity of libertarianism. It's like saying that what's distinctive about Protestantism is belief in God. That's not what's distinctive about Protestantism. There are lots of people who believe in God who aren't Protestants. Uh, and there are lots of people who believe in freedom who aren't libertarians. The specific claim, and Rothbard makes it, I think, more systematically than anybody, is the less the state does, the freer we will be. I was going to say, too, I don't know if this gets into it in a way, but I, I feel like Rothbard um, ends up being part of this debate in a way about uh, connotations of, I, I guess, what's been called positive liberty and, and negative liberty. So, um, you know, the positive liberty being the ability to fill, fulfill one's purpose. Negative liberty is the freedom from inf interference by others. And I guess Rothbard would sort of fit with the latter. Mm hmm. Well, although uh, I take it the only reason why we are interested in negative liberty is because we want to be able to live our lives as we like. If uh, you want to avoid oppression by other people, uh, you can reliably avoid oppression by other people by going to the edge of a desert, walking into the desert and waiting until you die of thirst and starvation. Nobody will oppress you. No one will have done this to you. But many of us want other things from our lives. And the promise that you'll be able to live as you like has been one of the big selling points of libertarianism. When people talk about liberty, that's what they have in mind. Uh, the idea of positive liberty is somewhat confused by the fact that there is a famous essay by Isaiah Berlin that introduces the idea and what he's worried about is the understanding of liberty as fulfilling your purpose, which may not be how you understand it. You know, so nationalism as positive liberty, which wants to recruit people uh, who don't really adhere to that conception of the nation. Uh, we're seeing quite a lot of that in Russia right now. Uh, but the idea of liberty that I'm proposing, that I think is widely shared by liberals, is just the ability to live as you like, the ability to live the life that you want. And if you want to have that, you have to have resources. And the classic liberals all understand this. John Locke thought that everybody has to have a minimum amount of property to keep themselves alive, and that a social contract like the one that Rothbard imagines where some people have an obligation to starve if they happen not to have anything, just is not an attractive conception of liberty. It's interesting to me because I've noticed over the years that you get into some really weird issues when it comes to libertarianism, and especially that sort of Rothbard, Lou Rockwell end. So I've seen debates uh, between libertarians about things like anti-discrimination laws. And there are some uh, libertarians that I think are actually, they're against discrimination laws and they're you know I, I i've always found that a bit interesting because there's some libertarians that support uh, anti-discrimination laws and some that don't 
Uh, could you talk about that? Because I know you covered discrimination law in this. Yeah. So I've got a chapter about that problem. And in fact, it was one of the things that uh, pushed me away from libertarianism right at the start that uh, it entailed that the state could not force you into contracts that you didn't want to enter into. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of anti-discrimination law. And libertarians have been attached to this for a long time in the teeth of quite a lot of evidence. So uh, Milton Friedman, whose framework is basically the same as Hayek, made an argument against anti-discrimination law, claiming that the market could take care of it in 1962 in his book, Capitalism and Freedom. And then anti-discrimination law happens in 1964 and black incomes rise massively. And once again, I think that one's relying on an impoverished conception of freedom. But notice there's uh, these two different varieties of libertarianism, the Hayek strand, which focuses on consequences. So Friedman, who was working within the same framework as Hayek, had to predict that black people would, in fact, be better off if there were not anti-discrimination law. And then there is the rights-based view associated with Rothbard, also with Rand, that uh, holds that uh, it, people just have a right to do what they want with their property. And so you are violating people's rights if you compel them to enter into contracts they don't want to enter into. And so it doesn't matter whether uh, Black people's lives will be improved by anti-discrimination law. <clears throat> Nozick was careful about this because Nozick also thought that if there have been past injustices, that the state has to do things to rectify those past injustices. And he was open to the possibility that anti-discrimination law might be necessary in order to accomplish that. So it's interesting you said that was one aspect of your maybe moving away from libertarianism. Having read uh, a, a good bit of the book now, maybe you could talk a little bit about your journey away from libertarianism and also tying into that uh, the influence uh, of that sort of Rothbardian strand of liberalism, uh, libertarianism in ways that maybe people don't consider. Because I know you've written books on things like same-sex marriage and the courts, and I think you would argue that you know that sort of strand of libertarianism has really influenced uh, the courts and a lot of decisions made in recent years. Well, certainly. So uh, I think that I first became aware of my reservations about libertarian rhetoric in 1986 when I was a law student and the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision called Bowers versus Hardwick in which they claimed that essentially there was no right to privacy for gay people, that homosexual sex could be criminalized by the state, and there was no constitutional problem with that. And that bothered me. And I was a law student. I was looking for things to write papers about. The uh, in the field of academic law, a good uh, idea to live by as an academic is you're beautiful when you're angry. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, if you can point the uh, audience towards some injustice, something wrong, uh, that uh, you can get a good article out of that. And so I looked at what other people wrote about the Hardwick case, and a lot of the rhetoric was libertarian that uh, gay people had a right to engage in uh, private sexual conduct. This is still the platform of the Libertarian Party even today, because anybody's got a right to enter into any private transactions they want with anybody else. And I had two reservations about this. One was that uh, it entailed that there couldn't be any anti-discrimination protection for gay people, because all anti-discrimination law is unjust. And I had reservations about that. I didn't think that that was right. And the other is that there are laws that protect people from themselves, some of which I find attractive. I think that uh, while I'm not prepared to endorse the stupid and brutal war against drugs that the United States has today, I think that it's a good thing that heroin and fentanyl are not available at every corner store. Uh, and uh, if, in a libertarian world, they would be. So that made me, that pushed me in the direction of trying to figure out some basis other than privacy for saying that Hardwick was wrongly decided. So one of the things that launched my career as an academic was arguing that discrimination against gay people is a kind of sex discrimination, which is unconstitutional, which is an idea that the Supreme Court recently adopted uh, 30 years after I made it. And uh, but also uh, it made me think about, well, all right, so what would a more attractive philosophy of liberty look like? 
And so that led me uh, to where I am now, uh, saying that uh, the state actually has a pretty robust role if people are going to be able to have the lives that they want. So I, I want to get more into what the state's uh, role can be and, and where libertarians would disagree with you and the arguments you would make to them. So can we go there? Absolutely. So uh, the two issues that I focus on in the book are regulation and redistribution, because those are the two issues with respect to which uh, libertarians have the, uh, I think, have had the most impact there is enormous suspicion of any government of the regulatory state. There is a sense that the regulatory state is inefficient and tyrannical, and let's get rid of all of these regulations. Uh, Trump uh, made that argument a lot, and he really did quite a lot to uh, gut regulatory agencies' effectiveness, uh, something that Biden is in the process of rebuilding now. Uh, and... <coughs> uh, on redistribution, uh, he didn't talk so much about that. In fact, uh, his claim was that uh, working class Americans would be better off than they had been before because there would be more intervention in the economy that would benefit them. But I think this shows the power of libertarian ideas uh, in the American economy. I can't think of anything tangible that Trump did that benefited the working class people at all because the basic problem was that a free market was distributing resources away from them, and you would need to interfere with the market distribution if you were going to make those people better off. And Republicans don't like to do that. So in regards to the arguments you would make towards libertarians about, you know, actually in order to have the kind of liberty we want or that they want, uh, you need uh, a robust government as well. What's the what are some of the key points you would make to those libertarians? I know some of them are listening. So, yeah, well, uh, so there is a starting point that we have in common, and that is the philosopher John Locke, who uh, wrote in the 1680s, uh, invented social contract theory, the idea that uh, government exists in order to protect our lives, liberty and property. Uh Thomas Jefferson was summarizing Locke in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and so then the question that we can talk about, if uh, you are an adherent of that view, is what a fair social contract would look like. And something that Locke understood, but that many of his modern followers, such as Rothbard, do not, is that a fair social contract has to give everybody a reason to agree to it. If uh, the idea of a social contract is that everybody has got some reason to acknowledge its authority, then there can't be an obligation to starve. The social surplus can't be distributed in such a way that some people don't have the means to keep themselves alive. Locke was quite explicit about our right to food and shelter, but the argument easily extends to medical care, which was the object of enormous debate between the more libertarian-minded Republicans and Obama in recent memory. And uh, so the book uh, has a fairly extensive engagement with Locke, showing that Locke is not a libertarian, that uh, Locke has a fairly major role for redistribution, uh, the problems of regulation are less of an issue for him. Uh, and But redistribution is the real sticking point for libertarians uh, who are attached to Locke. And I argue that uh, if you're going to try to come up with conditions for a social contract theory that really are fair and that everyone could agree to, that pushes you in the direction of a modern philosopher who libertarians can't stand, John Rawls. Can we get into that a little bit? And also, you know, it's funny. That is the sticking point, I think, with libertarians. I think they hear redistribution, and I think the immediate response a lot of times is, no, that's socialism. Any kind of redistribution is socialism. So how do you how do you push back on those sort of um, knee-jerk reactions? My immediate response to that is you look at the Scandinavian welfare states, which are the most generous welfare states that uh, we have, and 
those generous welfare states are combined with go-go capitalism and free markets. Sweden has more billionaires per capita than the United States. So uh, it is possible both to have fairly energetic redistribution and a pretty energetic regulatory state and still have the benefits of free markets. If uh, well, There is a I think a persistent confusion about socialism that goes back to the road to serfdom. Hayek was writing against socialism and socialism was not the program of the Democratic Party post Roosevelt. So this uh, is an area I know you wanted to get into. So a lot of my listeners, I I have a very eclectic mix, mix of, I think, centrist liberals, people that lean much more leftward, including Democratic Socialists of America, um, social Democrats, and also I have libertarians. So I guess one area that you were interested in talking about is like, where could there be potential agreement between uh, like a DSA member and a libertarian and a, and a, you know, a centrist liberal? Well, with respect to, I think, the most fundamental distributional issues, I regard myself, I have, uh, I've always regarded myself as a person of the left. And what I understand the left to be defined by is concern for the losers, concern for the people who are being treated the worst by the existing system and wanting to make their condition better. And Hayek's big insight is that if you want to do something about poverty, about which was the pressing problem of his time, that the only way that you're going to address that is by generating a lot more wealth so that there is enough wealth to go around. There was not enough wealth in the world in 1944 to give everyone a decent life. Economic growth was the only hope. And while the neoliberalism post-Reagan has done a lot of things wrong, and I have, I'm critical of it in many ways, uh, it has done wonders in ameliorating world poverty. In 1970, uh, more than a third of the human race was living at uh, poverty of less than $2 a day. And today it is less than 10%, and those mostly live in failed states. And it was a combination of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the opening up of markets all over the world and the end of socialism in India. And uh, all of that generated the kind of cooperation that Hayek envisioned, where local people who have uh, more information than you or I do about what will make them better off are freed to enter into transactions with other people that make both sides better off. And it makes a web of cooperation that improves the lot of everybody. So if that's your concern, I wrote a number of pieces that were spin-offs of this book, and one of them, which was on the Niskanen Center blog, uh, was called Socialists for Capitalism, in which I tried to argue that if you're a socialist, if you've got the concerns that drive socialists, you should want a free market with a robust welfare state. And there are people who identify as democratic socialists who, uh, you know, that is in fact what they want. That is been that has been the position, for example, of Bernie Sanders for a long time. It has always been the position of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, and so I think that is what the position on the left should be. But there are debates within the left. Uh, the people who publish Jacobin want the state to control the means of production, and my response to them is that that has been tried and it has not worked to the benefit of the poor. So I've had people from places like Jacobin on my show. Where do you think maybe democratic socialists get things right? Where do you think the Jacobin sort of left gets things right? Like like you've gone over where you think they get things wrong. Is there anything that you think they do get right? They are enormously attentive to the failures of capitalism. And there is no question there are failures, places where a regulatory state ought to be intervening much more aggressively than it is now. And if you read Jacobin, you will learn things that are true and that you need to know about the ways in which the state is failing. Uh, But I mean, there are two different kinds of error, and I see them on left and right. 
Uh, if your hypothesis is the market can't do anything right and you go looking for evidence of that, you will find it. Uh, and if you look for evidence that the state can't do anything right, which is what libertarians do, uh, they're able to find pretty massive evidence of state failure. Go back to COVID. The Centers for Disease Control in the first months came up with its own test, which was no good. Uh, wouldn't let anybody else come up with their own test. And it was a classic example of stupid government bureaucrats interfering with the market and making everybody worse off in a disastrous way. So the story about state failure is sometimes true. It's a hypothesis that is sometimes right. And the story about the failure of capitalist markets is also sometimes true. The world is just complicated. And arguments that capitalism never works or uh, regulation never works are just too crude. So getting back to, I, I want to delve into the title of your book because I, I, I like that you call it how libertarian philosophy was corrupted by delusion and greed, because I think that says a lot about your own viewpoint. You're not necessarily writing a book saying libertarianism itself is bad and I have no use for it. You're saying that there's been a corruption of the, the philosophy by, I guess, different delusions. And I think we've delved into that a little bit. Yeah, although I haven't, let me let's just clarify what I mean by corruption, because the term has two meanings. One is uh, familiar to uh, anybody who's worked with computer code. Uh, you know, corruption is just a distortion. If computer code is corrupted, it means that random noise has been introduced so that the code doesn't work anymore. But it can also mean that somebody is manipulating something for their own gain. And I think that both of these things have happened. I think that Hayek is offering an attractive way to think about markets and that Hayek's views have been distorted by the likes of Rand and Rothbard. But uh, what you get now when libertarian philosophy is deployed is really a coalition of two different groups. One is libertarian philosophers, some of them are friends of mine, who honestly believe that minimizing the state is the path to human freedom, who want a better world for everybody, and who think that this is the way to do it. And they find themselves politically in coalition with industrialists who would like to hurt people without being bothered by the police. That's the other part of it. So delusion and greed are hand in hand here. Uh, climate change is a good example of that. The reason why I use the title Burning Down the House as the story that I start with is an episode a few years ago. That was uh, Gene Carnick, right? Yes. Uh, the uh, A county essentially privatized its fire department, uh, contracted with a nearby fire department, so that everybody would pay a fee for fire protection. Craddock was an old man who uh, he'd been paying, but one year he forgot. And then his house caught fire and the fire department stood and watched his house burn down because he hadn't paid his fee. And there was a vigorous debate in the press about whether this was appropriate. And libertarians argued that uh, this is what the world needs to be like in order for people there to be efficient delivery of services. And there were people on the left who said, this is the true face of capitalism, callous disregard for other people's needs. And this is why we need socialism. This is why we need to concern ourselves with people, not profits. And I thought both of these uh, misapprehended what libertarianism, at least originally, was about. One of the people who defended the fire department was Glenn Beck, who promoted Hayek and who was responsible for making Hayek's book a bestseller years after Hayek had died. And Beck, and I think a lot of libertarians didn't really see any difference between Hayek and Rand. And I started writing the book because I'd written an earlier book about the Obamacare fight in which I argued that uh, the opposition to Obamacare was based on libertarianism, which is not in the Constitution. And in writing that book, I read Rand and I read Hayek, and I thought there were dramatic differences between them that weren't generally understood by the public. Could you speak a little bit to that? I know it's your previous book, but how, like, how did libertarianism essentially uh, affect the the arguments around Obamacare? Because I, I think people would be interested in that. Well, so I first got into this because uh, 
I was uh, asked to do a debate about the two federal district court cases then, which had struck down Obamacare as unconstitutional. And I hadn't paid a lot of attention to that. I was working on other issues in constitutional law, but I read these two district court opinions and they were so poorly reasoned, uh, I got upset and started writing about that. And uh, you know, at first a few blog posts, and then I turned the blog posts into an article as the challenges to Obamacare started winning more and more in federal courts. And I thought that this is just terrible constitutional reasoning. And for some reason, an awful lot of judges were inclined to read into the constitution this right not to have to buy an unwanted product uh, which just wasn't any part of the Constitution. And as I wrote about this more and more, you know, I'm a professor. If I'm going to write about something, I'm going to read about it and learn about it. And it became clear to me that these folks were importing into constitutional law libertarian ideas. Another protege of Murray Rothbard was Randy Barnett, who was the mastermind of the Obamacare litigation. So all of that ended up being a book about the Obamacare litigation called The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform. And after I finished that book, uh, I had unfinished business with libertarianism. And so I kept working on it. And that led to this book. So another interesting avenue I wanted to go down, and, and I don't want to imply that there's like bad faith on the, on the side of um, that sort of Rothbard brand of libertarianism. But when I read someone like Rothbard, and I did read Rothbard when I was going through my, um, I call it the the white male teenage phase uh, that, that many men go through where they end up going the libertarian route for a while. Uh, I know a lot of young men that have gone that uh, direction when they're younger. Uh, but I, I guess what always bothered me was, I think people like Rothbard talk about the path towards freedom, but in some ways, I think that in a weird way, the philosophy that Rothbard and and figures like Lou Rockwell promote, it almost seems like it it opens the door towards a weird form of almost like authoritarianism. I don't want to even say I don't want to go in as far as to say feudalism, but when you're making arguments that oh, only the rich should have um, police forces, like we should have private police forces, and you, you know only rich people should be able to get them, and you know screw everyone else who can't afford uh, protection. To me, that that becomes very authoritarian. Is, is there like a weird issue where this kind of anarcho-capitalism could lead down to very, um, I guess, almost like feudalistic paths? Well, uh, this line of analysis was pursued by a political philosopher at Pennsylvania, Samuel Freeman, uh, who is a student of Rawls and an authority on Rawls. Uh, the uh, article is called Illiberal Libertarians. And he argues that... Uh, the vision is fundamentally not about liberty, but about property. And you know, we accept the existing distribution of property and everyone contracts to make the best deal they can, including selling themselves into slavery if that's what's necessary. And that kind of contractual relationship of protection does look an awful lot like the feudal order. Uh, it's not liberalism. I want to get into the the second element of the, this element of greed that you you mentioned earlier. Um, if we could, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Koch brothers. And there's been books about this. Uh, I, I know you referenced Jane Meyer's book, uh, Dark Money. Uh, let's talk about the Koch brothers and maybe their influence and how they have been influenced by libertarian ideology. So uh, one thing about Charles Koch that I think is not well understood, and while I admire Jane Mayer's book, uh, it's something that I think that she could emphasize more than she does, is his idealism. Koch, I, uh, real quick, if I could, I, I think it's that's a very important point to make because I, I do think um, the Kochs are actually, I, I think they do believe in, in libertarianism. Um, I, I think they're committed to it. And there's actually, you know, I've I've read some of their stuff on criminal justice reform. And I, I kind of am like, oh, that sounds actually, you know, pretty decent. Uh -huh. I think that, but, you know, I disagree with them on most other things, but I, I think they are idealistic about it. Well, Charles Koch was funding libertarian causes in the 1960s, long before he was as rich as he is now, long before he had any hope of having any political influence. And uh, so 
he believed this stuff, uh, you know, at a time when there was no reason why he could have imagined that it would benefit him personally or financially. Uh, you know, he really just believed this stuff. And uh, he writes in his books, which I've looked at, that uh, the uh, people who most influenced him were free market writers, such as Ludwig von Mises. Uh, Mises was uh, Hayek's teacher, much more uncompromising than Hayek in resisting any kind of state regulation or redistribution. He thought that the state didn't know enough to do either of those things. And uh, the, uh, the place where I find uh, tension within Koch's view is one of the uh, things that Hayek was willing to acknowledge was if there's pollution, if there are systemic effects that the market isn't going to fix, then there's a legitimate role for the state. Well, climate change is the most serious kind of pollution that there is, and you know, kind of pollution that is altering the entire planet in a major way. And Coke, by the time the climate change was a real developing problem, at that point, Coke had become fabulously wealthy, one of the richest people in the world. And he spent millions of dollars disseminating fake science trying to cast doubt on climate change. Jane Mayer does do a very good job of documenting this. And it is not something that you can justify in a Hayekian frame. Maybe you can do it in a Rothbardian frame because Rothbard was so absolutely opposed to state regulation. And we know that uh, Koch overlapped with Rothbard and his views quite dramatically. Uh, the two men were allies for a long time. Uh, Koch started the Cato Institute with uh, at the instigation of Rothbard. And the Cato Institute was an extremely Rothbardian place early on. Uh, eventually, unsurprisingly, uh, Rothbard uh, insubordination was one of the things that characterized Rothbard throughout his life. And uh, so eventually there was a parting of the ways between Rothbard and Koch. But Rothbard's ideas, I think, continue to have a major impact on Koch. But it really is uh, a hard to justify in terms of his philosophy uh, producing uh, goods that hurt innocent third parties. The non-aggression principle is not supposed to allow you to do that. And there are some smart libertarians who have said, uh, you know, climate change is a violation of the non-aggression principle and regulation is appropriate to constrain it. People like uh, Jonathan Adler at Case Western Law School has uh, emphasized this quite a lot. And Adler is absolutely right. Is there anything else we can add to this this climate change issue and how libertarianism has dealt with it? I'd like to dive into that a bit more. Well, uh, the uh, the suspicion of the state. This is an area where suspicion of the state is radically misplaced. That uh, we are. Uh, Hayekian case for regulation is the reason why we know that a transaction between you and me improves the world is because if it didn't improve the world, we wouldn't enter into the transaction. If I buy something from you, it must be that it makes us better off. And that's the great virtue of markets, creates this enormous web of cooperation. But if the cooperation injures third parties who don't consent, then it is possible that you and I are just another kind of bandit making a transaction uh, that benefits us by hurting other people. And that's the argument for regulation of pollution. Well, climate change is a novel form of pollution, but it is uh, an instance of exactly that kind of problem. And if Coke had not spent so much money engaged in denial of climate change, uh, a carbon tax, which is the most Hayekian response, just let's make thing, let's make prices reflect their true social cost, and then let the market work it out, that would have been adopted in the first Bush administration. 
and the catastrophe that we are seeing in the world today with melting ice caps and rising sea levels and forest fires and worse storms, none of that would have happened. So the reason why libertarian matters the most is because uh, there is an ongoing catastrophe right now for which I am sorry to say libertarianism has to take some of the blame. If we could, I know the sixth chapter of your book uh, deals with uh, moochers. So what, what do we mean by moochers in the context of your critique that you're making in this book? Uh, so uh, it's a phrase that I take from Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand thinks that uh, there are people who, uh, the reason why she worries about a welfare state is that there are people who point to their own needs and think that that is a basis for a claim on other productive people. And the attraction of the world that she envisions is it is a world of people who actually produce value and trade with other people. And her promise is that we will have a world in which people have an incentive to become producers who generate wealth, who don't owe anything to anybody else, and that that is a more attractive world. She is really feels in many ways personally endangered by claims of need, which she thinks will overwhelm her. And again, I think this is a product of the trauma of the Russian Revolution. But uh, when I look at the kind of resistance to the state that is offered by people who will benefit from having the state go away, uh, I think that this is exactly the kind of mooching that she is opposed to, that pe businesses that make money by injuring other people, they are placing their own needs and wants above the obligation to respect other people. It's exactly the kind of thing that uh, she was opposed to. And so I want to argue that people who resist uh, this kind of regulation, thinking that they are promoting uh, freedom, are really uh, becoming stooges for industries that really want to hurt other people and violate the non-aggression principle. As I put it in the book, John Galt is a sap. He is being manipulated. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I guess I wanted to come back to um, Rothbard just for a second, because I think out of all the figures you deal with in this book, I think he represents the most extreme end of, <laughs> of libertarianism. And I'm just curious because I'm I'm not a fan of Rothbard either, but I always like to play devil's advocate and, and ask, uh, do, what do you think? Is there any value in a figure like Rothbard and his thinking? Is there any positive value in it, as well as the criticisms that can be made of it? Well, the positive value is the suspicion of the state. Uh, you know, let's imagine uh, that uh, you've got a doctor who thinks that the body can heal itself, that medical intervention is never warranted, leave people alone and they'll get better. Medicine is counterproductive. Uh, now, you do not want this man as your doctor. Let's call him Dr. Pangloss because he's an optimist. Uh, he, he, he's no good as anyone's doctor, but he could be a fabulous medical researcher if he spends his career exposing this or that medical treatment as pointless and counterproductive. He can actually contribute to medicine and the Rothbardian suspicion of the state to the extent that it identifies counterproductive and wasteful things that the state is doing, and such things exist. Libertarians have a valuable contribution to make. So you read Milton Friedman or Richard Epstein, you get a catalog of stupid regulations and pointless interventions. And with respect to an awful lot of those, they are right, and they're offering a valuable contribution. But Rothbard is just way too categorical about that. The other thing that Rothbard was an early adopter of was uh, going beyond economic liberty to a more general right to be a weird that has been an important part of the impetus of the gay rights movement and other elements of the counterculture that are now accepted in the culture broadly. 
uh, greater tolerance of human variation, which I think has been good for American society and for the world. I also, if you have a few more minutes, I, I did I want do. to touch on one more thing um, uh, before we wrap up. And that's, uh, you, you mentioned um, the drug war. And I, I I have a lot of overlap with libertarians in criticizing uh, the war on drugs, but I also, I'm not sure that my views are exactly the same as libertarians in the sense of, I think people who have addiction issues uh, should, shouldn't be treated like criminals. You know, I think we should be um, trying to rehabilitate people. Uh, but I, I feel like libertarianism is more uh, along the lines of um, uh, people should just be able to do whatever drugs they want. Uh, so uh, how would you thread the needle when it comes to criticizing the drug war and also criticizing maybe the way libertarians look at the drug war? Um. So uh, I hope I wasn't being uncharitable either in how I described libertarians there. But uh, so as soon as you say, well, uh, you know, there ought to be drug treatment and rehabilitation available to people who are addicted and don't want to be. Not all addicts don't want to be, but a lot of them don't want to be. Uh, then you are already talking about redistribution because uh, drug addicts uh, tend to not have a lot of cash. And so if they are going to be uh, treatment, it is going to be via some redistributive mechanism. Uh, I also think that uh, if you uh, turned over uh, the marketing of these things to the free market, that uh, the market would try to break into new markets. One of the things that the tobacco industry has shown us is that uh, if it's possible to recruit teenagers, uh, that would happen. That, you know, there's lots of people who don't know how much they would enjoy cocaine, uh, who uh, would have that brought home to them. You can imagine what Joe Camel could do with those enormous nostrils. Uh, and uh, that uh, while the drug war has been counterproductive, uh, state intervention that uh, prevents its promotion and makes it not as easy to get as uh, available at the 7-Eleven uh, that insulates it from impulse purchases would I think lead people to have better lives than they would in a world of complete deregulation. I've got a chapter on uh, the drug issue book. So in closing, what do you hope my listeners, whether they're uh, socialist or libertarian or anything in between, what do you hope they get out of uh, burning down the house? I hope that they have a better sense of the case for the kind of mainstream liberalism that I am selling. I want people on the left to see that markets play an enormous role in ameliorating poverty and making working people better off than uh, a uh, Jacobin-style socialism would deliver to them. Uh, and that's an argument about means, not about ends. I think it also uh, shows that you're going to have to tolerate probably more inequality than a lot of folks on the left want to tolerate in order to, uh, make again, make people at the bottom better off. And I want libertarians to, who generally are drawn to the idea that we want people to be free to shape their own lives, that a minimal state is not the way to do that. Well, I want to thank you again, Andrew M. Kopelman, for coming on Parallax Views to discuss Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew M. Koppelman, and that you'll check out his book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Quick reminder that the Halloween season is upon us and we'll be doing the annual spooky season editions of the show shortly here so look forward to that and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with parallax the way out is not simply to say, don't do it. 
that to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.